Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello, pod people. Leo Phillips here with This Must Be The Gig, your little backstage pass to the world of live music. Every single week, we bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the performance scene with some of the most exciting names on this big, gigantic, spongy globe. We talk passion, we talk first concerts, insights into the creative mind during this truly unusual time, and everything in the Juicy Center. This week, we're excited to share a conversation with Olafur Arnolds. I, it kind of bothers me when people take my music too seriously. Like a fusion of classical composition, modernists like Avril Part, and his own background in punk, Olafur's compositions tap into an immense well of emotion and deliver surreal heights. His latest album, Some Kind of Peace, appropriately paces his face directly on the cover, eyes closed as if in the middle of a dream. That powerfully personal and intimate feeling swims throughout the record. In this chat, Lior spoke with Olafur about his old hardcore band, Fighting Shit, his introduction to composing through German metal band Heaven Shall Burn, what makes his new album his most personal, touring with Sigur Rós, and so much more. So let us not be delayed. This is Lior and Olafur Arnolds. Enjoy! When you emphasize freedom and individual freedom for so long and so heavily, people eventually will lose the sense of community. You know, that that people, I, I, I don't know, I'm an outsider. I'm looking at it from the outside. But it does seem to me that the sense of community and the idea of that we are actually human beings that should be helping each other and caring about each other seems, seems to have... Um, made way for for just extreme individualism. Being in the music industry, I've never really made the connection, but I wonder if we are a little bit more prepared because we're constantly in situations where we have to take into account our fellow man, especially with you mm. as a touring musician, you arrive in a, in a city you might not have been before. And then you meet this team of new people who, you know, if you don't have your crew with you, your full crew and you have to kind of be 
you know, respectful mm-hmm. of their of their machines and their equipment, respectful of a new crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and the same with like if you're going to see a show, obviously there's etiquette which sometimes is not exercised as it should be, but you kind of get a bit prepared in that way. And I'm not saying that the entertainment industry, because I feel like that's the first industry to have imploded, you know, from, from everything this year. But I feel like there is a sense mm-hmm. that most people don't really know how to behave in public spaces or with their fellow man. So I feel like, I don't know, <laughs> you, you kind of, you, you know how, you know how it goes when you're traveling and you have to be so careful. And especially as an artist, yeah. you have to take care of your health as well. We, we've had our fair share of cultural sensitivity training mm, exactly <laughs> by touring all over the world. You arrive in a new culture and you instantly have to just like uh, look around and see like, how do things work? Here? Right. How can I fit in? <laughs> how can I respect these people? Because also like as a, as a musician, you're kind of a public person. And, and if you do something wrong, people are going to hear about mm, it, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and they're going to talk about it. They're going to comment on it. You, you are that. They're going to tweet about it. <laughs> yeah. How dangerous <laughs> to think that people's fingers yeah. are the most dangerous weapon in the world right now. But it, 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 it yeah. is true. So when you do go to a new city, do you feel like you have to immerse yourself in the culture? Uh, I, I guess it depends on a little bit about... Uh, on on how long I've been on tour. <laughs> uh, usually when I start out or if I do one-off shows, if I go to a faraway country for one show, I really like to immerse myself in that culture, really take time a couple of days beforehand and and really get to know the people before I play for them. I, I love walking around the city and just getting to like getting some sense of the energy and the culture before I actually stand on stage in front of these people. Uh, but if you're playing a new city every day for, let's say, 40 days in a row, uh, you're not you're just not able to immerse yourself in every single culture. So that, then I tend to withdraw and become very introverted and I just be 100 percent focused on the show at hand. I, I, I spend all my days just helping the crew out and just kind of spending my time on the show in, rather than taking a walk in the city it, because it just tends to become too much for me. Uh, my, my brain doesn't handle, like as soon as your brain realizes like, oh, you've been in a new city every day oh, for 40 days, then it goes a little bit crazy. But you can kind of ignore that by just you know, immersing yourself in the show because the show is always kind of, it's, it, there's the same equipment on stage every day. There's the same setup on stage every day. So it can be like a home traveling home so I like to just spend all my days on stage (laughs) working on my set yeah that and that makes sense also it's like a good coping mechanism emotionally because if you do suddenly stop and realize how many places you've been and how that physicality is so draining as well and how overwhelming that all is I suppose that would take away from what you're actually there for which is you know the performance exactly yeah. It can do. And you just get so confused. Like I, I have, <laughs> yeah. I have definitely had my like spinal tap moment where, you know, with, with hello Cleveland and they're not in Cleveland. Uh, that no. has actually happened to oh, me. I think it was in Lisbon and I may have said Barcelona, oh. uh, which is, they're kind of rivals. Yeah. It's like Portugal and Spain, they're rivals in football and, um, uh, and it happened in 
it happened in Edinburgh and I said Glasgow. That's worse. That's, that's, that's definitely worse because th- they hate each other. <laughs> what did you say? How did you recover from that one? Like, how did you recover from saying that? Did you just carry on playing? Oh, no. And now I remember. This did happen in Lisbon or Barcelona, but I remember now what happened in Edinburgh. I didn't realize how close the cities were. And we were there just like an hour away. And we weren't playing Glasgow on that run, but we were playing Edinburgh. Okay. And being in Edinburgh, I went on stage and I like to joke around on stage quite a bit. And I said something like, you, you know, we're only playing Edinburgh on this run. So it's really great. Like, and I don't know, but I, I said something bad about Glasgow <laughs> just as a joke to kind of make the Edinburgh crowd laugh. Yes. Turns out half of the crowd was from oh. Glasgow and I was booed. <laughs> I was actually booed. Oh my God, this is like a horror story. Like you're a stand-up comic <laughs> and bombing on your, on your joke. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. But I love it. I loved it. It, it was a great moment. It, it wasn't mean booze. It was yeah. laughing booze, you know. Because you are a, a certain type of artist and you make a certain type of music. I know that isn't your history in, in, you know, your career. But I think maybe people expect you to come on stage and be quite serious or expect yeah. you to come on stage and be a certain, maybe not speak which I think is also a wonderful thing. Sometimes I don't even mind if the artist just goes straight to the, uh, you know, the instrument and starts. But if you, mm-hmm. if you have banter and you are engaging with the crowd, I think that that's such a, a wonderful way to also show that this t- style of music isn't, it, it isn't necessarily, I don't want to use the word serious, but it, it, it isn't necessarily in human you know it's very human and it's still made by a human it doesn't need to like be this some eclectic mystery from you know from iceland so i think that that's kind of yes. great that you do that you do that's that. precisely my that's precisely my my thought yeah. behind the the whole thing i it kind of bothers me when people take my music too seriously because it is it is quite introverted and melancholic and sure but but i'm not I'm I'm a social person. I like to joke around, and that that is a like that part of my personality. I really want to show through the music somehow, and being on stage, actually just being me and not being like pretentious about everything being super serious. I think gives people a much better understanding of what the music really means like what the real intentions are behind the music that it's actually quite positive most of the time yeah. um, and besides i just like to break people's expectations yeah. anyway that's just a, i just like to nudge things you know like oh you think it's this yeah. actually it's gonna be that way <laughs> but i love that because also doing that especially in a live setting and i know that it's difficult to do when especially now i mean coincidentally we're speaking on the day that your record has just been released so congratulations on that yes um your your new album some kind of piece and i also feel like some people they don't when they want to get into that uh, kind of internal headspace and that melancholic they want to they don't they want to escape and they feel that they can't feel a multitude of emotions because it might be hard to tap into that you know people feel Mm. it's like being completely submerged 
sometimes your music can do that you know and i think that some people just feel very overwhelmed by maybe doing that so in a live setting you may not have the guts to sit and bawl your eyes out or or, yeah. or dance <laughs> exactly. you know so i think it's almost kinder in that setting where it's yeah. like a sound bath almost you know and so... <laughs> it's it's just like how movies like sad movies need one comic relief moment right you always exactly. need that if only to give the sadness context like if you don't if you don't have the dynamic range i don't think the feelings are really real that are being delivered there like i if if i'm gonna play a sad show just as an example i don't believe it's sad but like if i want to play if i want to make people cry the whole show i can't start by playing a sad song and just play sad songs through the set because there's no dynamic movement in that you have to start from somewhere more positive and then bring people with you to that place and then bring them back up at the end of the show because you don't want to be mean. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to torture anybody. No, you don't want to send them home crying. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind a good cry, so I don't mind. But I, I, like, for example, I saw Cigarettes at a show somewhere and then I went to cover them at another show and I was in Australia at a festival. And the person, I was taking photographs in the pit and the person in the front row was literally holding on to me because she couldn't contain her herself. She was so, <laughs> and to be honest, some of their music is really quite light and fun. It's like cheeky, yeah. and you know, if you if you, <clears throat> and again, you don't need a certain air to listen to it. It is all about subjectivity, of course. That's music, but she was holding on so much and and slobbering all over me and crying and i was just like i was so overwhelmed because i felt so terrible i wasn't crying i was blown away <laughs> and like my feet were sinking into the ground because it was so you know it was such a beautiful performance but it just shows you how everybody can have that interpretation of that music whether it is considered classical or ambient or instrumental exactly and i think it's i think it's a matter of association as well maybe that person that you're describing uh went through like a really difficult time and that music helped her or him get get through it and hearing it again in this context in in, in a live context which can be very overwhelming every, every feeling gets so magnified when you're playing live and it can just bring them back to that that whatever they were going through and and therefore they're crying even if the music is positive and happy <laughs> um, but I think that's really beautiful yeah. that's that's really beautiful and like I, I I've thought about this like an insane amount because <laughs> it like basically for the last six months like every person in my position I really miss playing live and then I start thinking like why do I miss playing right. live and it's there, there's a few things there's like of course live shows her an opportunity to explore the music in very different ways and it gives you a, a new creative input. And then there's the energy of having people in the room uh, and just, you know, I think that's the, main, that's the main thing about playing live. It's a communal experience, which is just different from listening to music alone. When you hear something with other people, you feel their energy, you see that girl next to you holding you that's going through something, you know, and <clears throat> you feel the energy of the musician on stage. You feel the acoustics of the room. That part we cannot replace. I yeah. just don't see any way we can replace that. There, but there's a, there's another element to playing live, which is the storytelling aspect. And for me, 
playing live has always be, been this opportunity for me to really tell the story of the music. Like we we're talking about before with the anecdotes and the jokes on stage. Um, sometimes I tell literal stories of the songs, what they're about or what inspired them. Sometimes I just make a joke, whatever it is. Um, it's showing people who you are and they are understanding who you are and then understanding much more about the music. They're understanding the music in a much deeper way by sharing this space with you in that moment. And I think, I think this part we can do, we can, we can do that somehow yes. now. Um, I'm still figuring it out, but I don't think we can like get the energy to live streams, but we can, we can, we can get a community and we can get storytelling through social media, music videos, live streaming, you know, maybe just making a short film about the album. Right. Or, uh, and these these things are, are what I really want to explore for the next months when there's definitely no touring. I mean, and I know this is also the most personal album that you, you feel you have released. So the idea of, of not touring it right now, I suppose, can be at once kind of relieving, but also quite sad that you aren't sharing that with the world in that way Have yeah you felt- in, in some sense i think this is my album that needs touring the least because i think there's much more storytelling in the music itself than i've done previously it doesn't need as much explaining um as as for example like my last album which was this like more elaborate conceptual idea this one is is just more Hey, this is me, and by listening through the album, you will, you should just get it. I think. Um, so I don't think I need the touring as much, <clears throat> but but at the same time, I I really wish I could stand on stage and and talk about these songs, talk about what I was going through when I made them. But but there we have been working really hard on other things that will come out in the next few months, where we are doing exactly that, like doing storytelling of the album and. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we've just been too busy working on solutions yeah. to mope about <laughs> not being able to do what we originally <laughs> wanted to do. <laughs> it's true, like your brain has to click into that solution-based problem-solving mm. of this horrible riddle that we never know if people will even join in on a live stream or if that community will be there or as receptive at a certain yeah. time and time zone. So. I also loved your quote about how the album ties to reacting to life. I feel like that's so opposite from the idea many have of composing or, or, or of mm. ordering in a, in a structured kind of world. So how is that sense of control almost adjusted for you as a composer that you don't, you won't have that on a realistic level now, but, but also just within your music and how people interpret it? For me, this whole period has been about acceptance. Um, it's about just accepting what you cannot change. As cheesy as that sounds, um, we are all different levels of control freaks. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of our anxieties and and consequently, like not being able to create, not being able to do what you really want to be doing and, and, and follow your dreams comes from this anxiety from 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 not being in control and always having this need to control your situation. And that's why we feel sad when something happens to us, because it's something that we didn't control. We didn't choose that to happen. 
Um, and I just kind of feel that way about this whole pandemic. And uh, it, there was a moment a few weeks in where I just kind of curled up into a ball and I started crying, yeah. you know, yeah. and I didn't understand. I was like, why, why is this so sad for me? I live in Iceland. I can, you know, there's <laughs> like, it's not, not happening so much here. <laughs> yeah. I, I should be so grateful, you know, but I, I just felt like the weight of the world on my shoulders and something was happening to my, to my like fellow human beings that I cannot help with. I cannot help anyone. And, and I cannot control this. I cannot stop this. And, and I was grieving like my little, my tiny little like rituals, like, oh, I can't actually go to that cafe in every morning now and read the newspaper and have my Americano because it's closed. And these tiny little things, they just start just weighing so hard on you when they, and, and there was just this moment where I just had this full on release from all of that. And there was just a full acceptance that, I, this is no different than anything else in our lives. We actually don't control anything. And this pandemic is just showing us that and reminding us of that in a very extreme way. And as soon as this kind of this clicked, then I could go back into my studio and I could write so much music. Wow. I could do all these things. I was so clear from these thoughts. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it absolutely makes sense. I feel like we're all we all grieved in some sort of way, and whether that was like a continuous grieving. It's also an opportunity to change our ways. I think, like with with touring stopping, um, it, right now is an opportunity to look at how we do touring, why we do a touring, and if we can do it differently. Touring is pretty bad for the environment, to be perfectly honest. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> you know? it's awful because it's never it's never the thing that bands want to really address. And then when bands do address yeah. it, they are labeled as environmentalists or hippies. So it's a very contentious, but it's certainly, yeah. if you're in America, for example, you can get away with getting in the car if you've got the resources, obviously not every musician mm -hmm. does and has a driver that you can drive around. But if you're touring, say Asia or uh, even some places in Europe, it's just quicker to take a, take a half an hour or an hour flight. Uh, it's more productive. Yeah, I mean, I, I live on an island. I don't go anywhere without getting on a exactly. flight. Exactly, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Pause the podcast! It's time to step away from the conversation with Oliver Arnolds ever so briefly to share a special segment. We typically like to share our live stream or live show of the week, but this week we wanted to continue putting a spotlight where it's most needed and instead highlight an organization we think you should contribute to. This week we're highlighting the National Independent Venue Association and the Save Our Stages Act, which aims to preserve and nurture the ecosystem of independent live music venues and promoters throughout the U.S. and to ensure that independent venues nationwide can keep from closing permanently due to the pandemic. To learn more, contribute to the Emergency Relief Fund, and find links to contact Congress and support, head to saveourstages.com. That's saveourstages.com. But for now, back to Lior and Olifer. Enjoy! And, and it's not only the flights, there's so many other things, like even just the tour buses, mm -hmm. getting people to the concert is one of the worst things for the environment. If you, especially big concerts, like 20,000 people arriving in cars, you know, those, those are, have huge environmental costs. There's the 
There's the plastic waste backstage because promoters, local promoters really like to make things simple. So they use plastic stuff. Even in the auditoriums, they use plastic stuff. Um, and, and we like in my case, we've been really trying to change this just, you know, kind of just behind the scenes, like working with promoters to like do things differently. And it's really hard. It's always just like, well, this is how we do things. Yeah, We've always done it like this. And, and I'm not kind of big enough or important enough to make them change their ways that they've done for years and years. So if, if we just stop for a couple of years, which seems to be what's happening right now, maybe now is then the opportunity to restart in, in a different way. Maybe now is when we can actually change these things. I mean, small promoters, I understand they are, they have so much working against them, irrespective of this year. So prior to this year, Mm -hmm. but huge festivals who really try and make a green foot, foot, you know, footprint and really try those places. I mean, even like, I'm just thinking back to when I covered like Roskilder back in, God, it was like 2004 like maybe seven years ago or something, they already were, were, or no, it was Rockwerte in Belgium. That's a huge, I think that's like over a hundred thousand people. They already were yes, trying. Yes, I played there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an insane festival. I don't think I will go back for a while, <laughs> but I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit uh, shocked, but you know, um, <laughs> but it was amazing. Um, I remember. Can you imagine my music there? Oh my God. That, was, that was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> I actually can in one of the tents I can imagine yeah, it it was actually great <laughs> you almost have to again it's one of those situations where like you know everyone is high and and you know like tripping their balls off and then you've got to kind of get everyone into a zen moment to experience it but that's yes. it's like a meditation almost you need to get people yeah and usually obviously your music is better suited to a beautiful sound stage where you know, everything is illuminated and like a, have you ever played Le Guess Who before? The one in Utrecht? Yes. Uh, yes, I have something played that. Something like festival. that Tivoli, that Friedenberg location. Where it's like, yeah, I, I played the Tivoli like three times. I feel like I might have four probably times, seen you there. That's like one of my favorite <laughs> venues because anywhere it's you sit. It's a beautiful venue. It's not even so yeah, 360. everything. The sound is, yeah. God, it's so crystal clear. You can't even hear people talking. I don't even think people do yeah. speak at that festival anyway. <laughs> like very respectful. <laughs> But, yeah. <laughs> you know, like at Rockwecht, I remember seeing, I remember walking and, and being stopped by this long snake train of cups. It was plastic cups. And the whole initiative was if you collect plastic beer cups and return mm. them, if you collect like 20, then you get a token to get a beer or something. So it was oh, like, great. it was not only yeah. like, let's say, obviously it wasn't like, let's save plastic because they were still using it at that time. But it was like, let's try clean up at least. So there was a mindfulness yeah. there. And if, you know, that's a bare minimum that you can do. You know, obviously you've got to incentivize, incentivize humans because they won't do anything unless they win something. But there's so many ways that you could do it. I almost wish like musicians would form some sort of coalition, but there's so much happening with Spotify. You have so much working against yeah. you as an independent artist already that... It's so difficult to, as you said, no one wants to change their ways so quickly. So it's up to you then. You've got to then get into, you know, try get into a pattern of not 
getting on into a car every day or, or getting on a plane all the time, or if you're on a plane, then you've got to be away from home since living in Iceland, then you have to be away from home for a long time. So the logistics yeah. are really kind of messy. The logistics are messy. We, we, I, speaking of a coalition, we did. I have had conversations with a bunch of artist friends. Yes. I think this idea originally came from me and uh, John Hopkins. We were talking about like what can we, what can we Amazing. do, and we we started about forming a coalition, like a a, a a tours like to do our tours together, share the equipment trucks, yes. share the tour buses, um, like try to form some sort of a team, maybe three, four artists that would not even necessarily play in the same venue. You can have totally different crowds that still play the same city each night, but you could still share like a lot of the logistics to have the environmental costs of your tour. And also financially, it can it could make sense. But then something uh, something came up and there was no shows anymore. So that hasn't happened yet. Well, <laughs> but, I think that that's a first But I think step. it would be beautiful to see... <laughs> Beautiful to see artists kind of get together and think about solutions together. Another thing we really noticed um, uh, last year or yeah, on my last tour, at one, one, at one time I started counting the plastic bottles. My crew was drinking of water yes. every day oh, and I have 20 people in my crew. And <laughs> let's say each person, because like the, the standard is plastic bottles backstage for the whole crew. Because like we, you don't know where you are in the world, maybe the water from the tap right, is not that great. So yeah. it's just like a standard. You need filtered yeah. water, and and the standard is, let's say, twenty people times three bottles each. So you have maybe a, a crew of twenty, which is not even the biggest crew that you'll find. Like major artists have a hundred people in their crew, and and each person drinks three bottles of water per day. On my tour, there was 60 plastic bottles every single day. And we were maybe touring for 150 days. Can you count those bottles? You know, no, so nightmare. just a very simple thing. Like we, we bought a bunch of reusable bottles. We marked them, really printed some nice logo on them for the crew. So it would be really personal so they wouldn't lose them. And we give everyone reusable bottles and then just asked for like water stations around the venue to just refill them. And boom, you know, 60 bottles a day <laughs> saved by a very simple gesture. And, and all artists can do this. You don't have to do it publicly. It's all about just changing these tiny little ways. You just change the way you phrase your artist writer, for example. Just change some wordings in the artist writing. And, and, and that will, you know, in your contract and stuff. So there will be less plastic. Just put in your contract, no plastic cutlery. You know, there's these tiny little things. You have to do it once. And then it's the same document that goes out to everyone anyway. It's, you, you can do these little things by, by just being conscious and making your crew conscious of, of it. And then by doing that, you're also teaching the promoters. You're, exactly. You're telling the promoters, oh, this is something that the artists want. So then slowly the promoters will also change their way. And once they change their way, that's also the audience facing part gets changed as well. That's so true. I hope it does shift a it's little. It's like dominoes. Yeah, I hope, I hope it shifts a little bit. And I think that that conversation that you were having prior to coronavirus hitting and the pandemic 
taking over the world. I think that that's kind of the thing. Those are the exciting things that are going to come out of this, hopefully. But so when when you first obviously started getting into the music scene there, did you do you remember the very first show you ever saw when you were younger? Oof, um, I I started going to shows pretty young, like fourteen. I started going to punk shows, and I think. Possibly the first one was with um, American band Sick of It All, okay. American punk band from. Wow! <laughs> remember yeah. them? They played here. Did they? Um, when was that? They played a. a this would have been ninety nine, oh, probably. Wow. I'm so I'm thirteen. Maybe it's in two thousand. I'm not fully yeah. sure. Um, yeah, some some dudes from the punk scene kind of helped getting them to Iceland Amazing. to play a show. <laughs> it was crazy. And I just fell totally in love with punk and the, the attitudes and the ideologies. And, you know, I, within a year I was <laughs> vegetarian and like fighting against animal testing and, and like... Uh, it hit I, you. I, yeah, so it, it hit me hard. The punk hit me hard and, and I'm really grateful, actually. Because I understand that you drummed for like, you know, hardcore and metal as, as a teenager. So, and you had yeah. your own band and everything, which we'll get to, but... So had you, prior to that show, had you been playing an instrument or doing anything? Or was that the catalyst to get you into it? No, I had been I had been playing since I was five. Uh, I started music school when I was five. Oh, my God. Um, Little prodigy. So first with piano. Wow. I don't know if I was any good back then, <laughs> but there was certainly... Let's just say you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, first with piano. And then uh, I actually really didn't like piano that much so when I was like six or seven I asked my parents to change to drums so I started learning drums instead of piano Um, and I didn't really come back to the piano until I was like 16 or something um, yeah, drum solo is just way more fun for a little it's kid. To, you know, it's it's really true, <laughs> and also because you're you have no conception that you don't understand that that coordination is actually so difficult when you get older. There's there's yeah. there's that primal aspect of drumming that really. If I play drums now, it's it's not that anymore because. Because I haven't touched drums for like almost 10 years oh now gosh. in any serious way. And I, I used to be quite decent drummer. I even, I won an award you here did? for drumming. Oh my gosh. <laughs> battle of, in Battle of the Bands. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my band didn't win, but I got a special award for, for my, for my deep beat oh, skills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but nowadays, if I touch the drums, uh, it, not only am I bad at it, but because I used to be good at it, I'm now bad at it and aware <laughs> of that I'm bad at it, which is the yeah, worst. You've got <laughs> so the you're like oh. trying to play and all you're thinking is like, oh no, this sucks. <laughs> oh, oh, this is horrible. But when you're a kid and you're just learning, you don't know that. You think you're great all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm very discouraged when, whenever oh, I try shit. playing drums these days. Well, actually, it's me, oh, shit. it wasn't the band. The band was called Fighting Shit. That was the best. That was one of my bands, yeah. yeah. That was the best band. I was I absolutely. In, yeah. That was in a few others. I love hardcore band names from that age because the <laughs> names that teenagers think about, it's so brilliant. It was totally serious. Yeah. Like we, we were fighting some shit in this world, you know, we had to fight the shit. <laughs> oh, dude, I'm on board. I've already made t-shirts. Yeah. I've got a mug. I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> um, what was the best name that you can remember from that scene around that time? Like just around you, who was playing? Was there some 
I don't know. Do you oh. remember some of the other bands? The best names I can think of were in Icelandic, so they won't make sense here. Yeah, all the best names were in Icelandic, actually. That's so funny. How come uh, you guys <laughs> named yours? Was it just because you were so influenced to what it was what you were listening to at the time that you chose to have it in English? Like, I think, honestly, it was actually a joke yeah. at first. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just said it and we were like, OK, that's the name of the band. Yeah. Uh, we didn't think we were going to do anything with this band. We were just like a super thrashy like our first couple of songs were just complete jokes and then we kept going and we got better and we got more popular within the scene and we started touring and like at one point we were like should we change our name <laughs> to something serious and actually good and and it was just kind of too late yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah i still think about it like oh man that that name <laughs> i wish we had changed it <laughs> Because it was actually a good band. I'm very proud of what that band did. But yeah, so so my career in, in as a as a composer and a solo artist is directly related to my past as a as a punk hardcore drummer. Um, we were supporting this band on a few shows, yeah. like so. Fighting Shit opened up for them, um, uh, so I got to know them, and and I had been doing some demos of like more piano based music but at that point it was all like midi computer sounds it was not good i didn't have any real recording equipment or anything but i gave this demo to one of the guys in the band and they they emailed me a few months later just asking can can you write some like intro and outro for wow. our album and they gave me a small budget to record with the real strings and then they go on to have a top 10 album in, in europe and in germany and so Suddenly, I had this recognition <laughs> without having made any plans for that. And I wasn't even planning on doing an album, but a record label called me up and said, do you want to do an album? We'll release it. And wow. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> so, and I'll give that a go. <laughs> but it was never, I, I thought I was going to become like just a drummer for the rest of my life. And then this just kind of happened. But so I feel like some people consider metal music and classical to be on the opposite ends of the spectrum, but there are some real connections in terms of composing with that extreme emotionality and that like wide dynamic range. Do you see the two as interconnected in a sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I mean, to me, it's all just... Uh, kind of destructionalism idea of this just like mu it's just yes. music it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not it's not it doesn't have to be metal or classical because those are ideas that we created it's in the end if you ask ob objectively if you ask the universe what is this it's just going to be sound frequencies so uh, i think that there isn't as much difference as we like to tell ourselves um and yeah, they're both they're both types of music that can become a little bit complex. I think they have a certain complexity in common in terms of like the counterpoint and uh, and kind of internal structure of, of of the you know of everything happening within those music. Like if you listen to metal music, it's often very progressive and complicated time signatures, and and same with classical music, it it can it's very progressive a lot of the time. Um, so you, you'll find a lot of metal fans are really into classical music as well. You, you, you'll, <laughs> that's very common. To be able to be a metal drummer 
or like a jazz drummer, those are the hardest. I'm talking about like, you know, completely improvisational jazz, but it's yeah. those are the hardest things to master because as you said, it, yes. it is so progressive and there is so in terms of the pacing and the timing, there's so much to take into consideration. It's almost like it, it's, a, it's like a maths equation. And I love that mm -hmm. classical music can turn into that as well. I think it's also both are very emotional, like you punk music is it's pure emotional expression and and then what i what i'm doing today is just a very subtle version of that it's just expressing big emotions but just trying to use restraint while expressing those and and letting letting the kind of sparseness and fragility and and all the silences in between the notes deliver those feelings but but they're both very kind of big emotional expressions so was there a band that you toured with or because I know early on in your solo career you toured with with Sigaros and and you you've you know you've had you've had a lot of different you've been around a lot of different bands and and obviously in Iceland I know that the the camaraderie and collaboration is just you know look at your work with genre experimenting with Chiasmos and I don't know there's just so much there's so much of that collaborative spirit. So was there a band that you toured with that taught you a lot about maybe not only touring, but also your own music and... Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my first tour ever, funnily enough, was with American post-punk band Cursive. Um, oh my God, <laughs> I supported that's crazy. Them. Uh, like my my whole beginnings were still really much tied to punk, the punk yeah. scene, yeah. And all my connections were in the punk scene. My agent was like a booking agent that was really focused on post punk, post rock music. Um, so they gave me my first kind of opportunity to go in front of a slightly larger audience, like a few hundred people every night. Um, um, but then my I think my big big change in touring, big break kind of came with touring with Sigurros. It wasn't a very long tour I did with them. It was just a few shows. Um, but it was, I had already done a lot of touring at that point. I played hundreds of shows on my own all around Europe. And I was always kind of playing for 200, 300 people. Like, and I was just kind of stuck there. And then I did this tour with Sigurros and it just opened me up to a whole new audience. And I think more importantly, seeing them on stage, this was on their um, tour around the album Medesuri Eirum Vispilum Endalust, that um, 2008 yes. album, which was very a very positive album. It was very happy right. and upbeat and uplifting. And just seeing them have so much fun on stage. And they invited me on stage to, I always played the, the last song Amazing. with them, like some extra drums. Yeah. <laughs> and um, just seeing all the fun they were having really changed my approach to my whole thing. And I, I remember saying out loud to, to, I don't remember, my tour manager or something like, I don't want to make sad music forever. I want to make something happy because if I'm doing this every night, I want to be happy. You know, I want to be, I, w I want to be enjoying myself. If I'm playing shows every night, I don't want to be so serious yeah. all the time. I want to be light and uplifting and have fun with my crowd. And it really, it really changed um, and, and took away that seriousness that I had had previously. And I think by bringing that aspect into my live shows and into my music, 
that also just opened new ways for me that that I kind of found it you know (laughs) so to speak I found that the thing that it thing that hook or that that it was missing till that point is there a show that you've seen live a a performer that really has stuck with you you know because I think all of us, I think the music you make and the music you listen to doesn't necessarily have to align, but was there a live performance that you saw that just blew your mind? Like maybe when it was on tour or... Seeing Radiohead, uh, finally, like I've been a fan since I was a child, you know, Uh, and I only saw them for the first time three years ago. That was possibly my favorite live experience ever. It was, they played in Iceland and yeah it was yeah it was just wonderful um i don't know if that live show particularly inspired me but i was just such a fan yeah i was like i was just happy i was just that person who was yeah it's just all coming together and i've gone through so much with their music that i was just happy yeah i was just so happy they played forever too they played for like three hours and i'm a person who hates long shows i grew up in a <laughs> punk scene where 20 minutes is too long yeah. you know yeah, get in get out <laughs> when yeah. fighting shit toured we would like we, we we made a word for for ourselves by having the shortest shows oh <laughs> i think the record was nine minutes no. it was in leeds oh in God. england or something and we played for nine minutes uh, but there was still like 11 songs we played yeah, and just like played them really fast. <laughs> we just kind of liked to blow people out and 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 leave. You yeah. Know? <laughs> but, so I kind of grew up with not having much tolerance for very long shows. But radio had played for three hours, and Gosh. and I still wanted more by the end. So that was I, I think that's uh, that's the definition of a good show for me. The amount of things that you've worked on, it's it's so wonderful that you've worked on so many different things, like. I wanted to ask you about that ballet that you scored as well. And mm-hmm. that, I mean, like you, you've also, your music has been used in soundtracks and things like that. But I think, you know, taking that love of music and then scoring or being a part of somebody else's vision and project, it, it's a, it is a gear shift. You know, you have to prep yourself for putting your emotions aside and and telling someone else's story so how has that been for you to work on a ballet or or have your music used for soundtracks how has that been for you yeah it's as you say well i i i've scored also a lot of films and tv shows and and stuff like that and ballet i i've yeah it's been so long I, well actually when i did that ballet with uh, wayne mcgregor it's called diet 1909 and it was um it was about shackleton's exp- expedition to the south pole which happened in ni- 1909 um it was that was very free um i didn't have to think too much about the story i would just i would just write write some music that i thought fit kind of the general subject and then we just kind of melded it together in rehearsals and we changed things and kind of he he adjusted a lot of the dance to fit the music rather than the opposite but when working on films i think it's different then then you're really because there, there you have like specific scenes right. that you have to tell a very specific emotion that the scene is missing or that the scene needs um, or you have to support something that's happening and then you're really dwelling into or 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 diving into someone else's story absolutely and i love doing that it's really fun 
um, you you get a set of parameters or limitations that you have to work within kind of no one gives you those it's just like that that is the project it is within these limitations this is a story you're working with and by having all these limitations it kind of forces you to be even more creative to find solutions like i think it's uh when when you have all the freedom in the world you have too many choices like and, right. and things can become a little bit lost um whereas if you limit yourselves and you give yourself certain values or parameters to work within you can really get hyper focused on on solutions to that musical solutions to that so that's that's the fun part of it um n- nowadays i'm like like you'll see on my new album like i'm it's a very personal one and i think i'm much more interested in telling my own story these days yeah i don't i don't blame you i think i think that that's also yeah it's it's you know you've done so much work in in almost if you look at it kind of a short amount of time you've released a lot of a lot of material but i think also with this album you have some wonderful collaborators as well that fit so well into your range like uh you've got jfdr who's i I just think she's wonderful and she's amazing what was the most rewarding collaboration maybe one that you hadn't thought of that kind of was a bit of a surprise that's probably josen um who is featured on the song the bottom line Um, and, and we wrote that song together. Uh, she came to Iceland uh, to work on a f- couple of songs with me, but it was actually more for her solo work. Like I was gonna co-write or produce mm. some stuff for for her album, and it kind of just went the opposite direction. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, working on yours. I mean, that's uh, a smart switcheroo. Yeah. You know? well done. <laughs> we did. We did a bit. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Uh, we did a bit of both in the end, like we have songs for her as well. Uh, but yeah, to the, there was never the plan for her to be so, have such a big feature on my album at, at all. But when we when we started working together, we became so close so fast. We became really good friends. We had an absolutely wonderful time together. We got into really deep conversation. And I told her a story one night over a drink and we were, you know, she was so interested in it. It was about something that had happened in my life, a big transformational moment for me that happened last year. And and then we split split, and she went to our hotel and we met back up in the studio the morning after. And she brings full on finished lyrics oh my God. and says like, hey, I was, I was so touched by what you told me last night. I wrote the lyric about it. So she comes to the studio with lyrics that are actually written about my experience wow. that I was sharing with her. And, and that was just, that was so touching, this kind of selflessness in, in the writing process. And, and, uh, and I'm, I can't write words. I'm very bad at writing words and lyrics. So uh, I've worked with singers, and, but I always have to work with singers who write the lyrics. And, and it's often hard for me to connect with those lyrics because they're not mine. Mm, I didn't write them, but it's, yeah. And I, uh, uh, but in, in this case I can, I can connect intensely with these words. Uh, so that song became like my first song that features vocals and lyrics that is actually still super personal to me. 
Now, now, actually, when I think back to it, maybe this was her sneaky plan all the time because I remember she was always asking asking a lot of questions when I was telling her that story. Go. She kept going like, "And how did that make you feel?" You know, so <laughs> like, it was almost yeah. like she was taking mental notes, like already planning to go home and write this lyric. I, I should actually ask her. Look, if you've got a if you've got an overall long term long con plan, I'm I'm in. You know, it's a cheeky way of sneaking in, but I'm I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> when you say that something is personal, it's it's often misconstrued into I am releasing it that I've never done this before. It's such a heavy moment, you know, when you say something is personal, but it doesn't have to be heavy. It it, it can also just be re- a release, you know, just really yes. putting yourself out there. So is that how, I mean, I can't even imagine we obviously speaking on the day that it's all out there in the public, hmm. but what have you done to kind of prepare yourself for having people experience it in this way? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't know is yeah. the answer. Uh, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still on a, you know, it's just coming out and and it's just happening right now. And you know, my phone is going crazy right yeah. now, and like sure. I'm, just, I'm still like processing the whole thing. Um, I'm still, I'm still to check social media quite a lot like I, I haven't been reading really what people are saying about it um but yeah there there are definitely like moments in there that are very vulnerable because I, I sampled some things that are actually from my own life I you put some field recordings where you can hear conversations in the background that are actually just from my life um so so it is quite vulnerable to kind of put that on an album and release it to the world like that and uh I but I haven't done much to prepare well, for so that. I've distracted you just, for the last Just waiting hour. for the... So yeah. I, there's no way you can have prepared because I've been taking, hogging your time. But yeah, I, I, I'm really excited to to see what people think. And, and also maybe it's just in my mind that it's obvious. Maybe it's not that obvious and people won't sense it as the vulnerable thing that I think it is. You know, I, I don't know. Um, or maybe they will suddenly know everything about my life. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me everything. But also your face <laughs> is on the front cover, which obviously you've you've been on, on your covers before. But the last few ones, if I'm just looking at like the different album covers, mm-hmm. the last few ones you haven't been on. So I think there's kind of some uh, artistic metaphor in that, uh, you know, you, you are, you are yes. front and center. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. people will take. This felt like the right album to do that with. Yeah. I never want to do that unless there's like an artistic reason for exactly. that. Exactly. I don't want to put my face on the cover just for promotional reasons. Right. And I'm not that pretty anyway, so it probably <laughs> won't work. Dude, <laughs> you look like this ethereal, ghost-like, um, <laughs> this being that doesn't exist in the human world. So I promise, it looks good. It looks great. I kind of look like I'm dead, <laughs> don't I? A little. I mean. <laughs> Suppose you look a little dead. <laughs> this Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble. We'd like to thank Dean Berger and Daniel Brater for additional music, as well as the Consequence Podcast Network. Hey! If you've listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at TMBTGPod. 
and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again, and I miss you all week. Consequence Podcast Network.